Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 265 being recorded on Thursday, May 27th, 2021. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, before we jump into some juicy news and we've got a couple of listener questions, I wanted to send a big congrats to Chris Bell. If that name is familiar to listeners, he is the CEO of Perch, one of those quote unquote FBA Amazon seller roll-up companies. Uh, uh, and he was here on episode 252. Yeah, I heard he, he did a small raise um, this week. Did you, you get the details of that at all? I did, and you know, in the the venture capital world, which I, I am, uh, uh, I guess, uh, involved in to some degree, uh, you have your seed round and your A round and your B and your C. So they just did their A round, and what's kind of special about it is usually you'll do something like, uh, you know, maybe a couple hundred thousand to a couple small millions in a seed round and Silicon Valley, they, the seeds are, are pretty large. And then you'll do an A round, maybe five to 10 million in a B round, 20 to 30 or 40, et cetera. Um, their A round, they did 775 million. <laughs> so, so it's, uh, um, and then they proclaimed that they're the fastest company to achieve profitable unicorn status. Um, unicorn status means you have a billion dollar valuation. Uh, and then they've said they have been profitable since inception, which is interesting because if you keep, uh, you know, so that then what that means is they're probably just going out and using all this capital to acquire profitable companies. Um, and therefore as an entity from an EBITDA perspective, they're, they're, there's an accounting trick where they're profitable, but the you know, the the goodwill of those acquisitions is is kind of below the line. Um, and then it's the largest Series A ever raised by a consumer goods company by a factor of over four. So I think the previous record was something like 100, 125. So um, yeah, that's that is a crazy uh, raise. And you know, I think we've previously talked about. It's three billion in the U.S. and five globally raised for these types of companies, and and this obviously texts about another billion on there. And then uh, I think I saw an article that this caused other people to reload their war chest as well. So it's um, it's a very active segment, and it's exciting to see Perch, who is a friend of the show, um, really really start to scale up. Yeah, yeah. I had two immediate thoughts. Uh, number one, clearly it's an advantage to get on the Jason and Scott show before doing your raise, because it seems like there's about a four X multiple you get just for being on the show. Mm-hmm. And number yeah. two, yeah, that was in the footnotes of the press release. Yeah. And number two, uh, it's going to be ugly when they show up on shark tank and try to do an up round. Cause Mr. Wonderful is going to cream them on this valuation. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Wonderful is going to just like tap out in the first five seconds. He's the bottom feeder. He's not going to like, like this one. Yeah, they're they're only um, going to get a royalty deal from him. Small loan that they pay back in five minutes with thirty uh, percent interest. 
um, uh, you know, uh, compounded every, every uh, three seconds. Uh, okay. Uh, so this week we have some listener questions, as I mentioned, but before we get to that, there was some pretty big Amazon news. Your margin is their opportunity. Yeah, I'd like to say it wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show if we didn't talk a little bit of Amazon. And they made a really big play this week. They announced that they uh, are going, they've entered a uh, negotiation or a, uh, let's see, an agreement to buy MGM for $8.45 billion. Um, I have a theory here that Jeff wants to own the James Bond franchise so he can put himself in there. I think he fancies himself in his current uh, situation of a single bachelor um, that's gotten pretty buff as maybe the next James Bond. Um, But uh, maybe that's off a little bit. What did you think about this one, Jason? Yeah, well, a couple of thoughts. So A, whether Jeff realizes it or not, he clearly is the Bond villain in this scenario. (laughs) I mean, he's got Lex Luthor vibes. Yeah, the crazy, bald, super buff guy that owns his own rocket ship um, and then buys the company James Bond works for. Like, I think that's the theme for like eight James Bond movies. Yeah, if only he had a cat that he, uh, and maybe he does, but who knows? Maybe he has a cat that he sits there and pets while he's planning his, his next moves. Yeah, um, I don't know. Uh, you know, people have been asking me about the, this. In the, to me, the acquisition makes perfect sense. It's not even very surprising and pretty consistent with a lot of other tactics we've seen Amazon follow. Like the open question is whether that's a good valuation for MGM or not. But the, you know, big picture, Amazon is this platform, um, and and we're all familiar with the flywheel. But in essence. Uh, the more reasons Amazon has for people to join Prime, the more money they they make on this whole ecosystem of services around Prime. And it's it's one of their biggest competitive advantages versus other content publishers that, or content syndicators that might have been interested in MGM is uh, Amazon can sell James Bond merchandise on Amazon. They can make Amazon TV shows for Amazon Prime. Um, those Amazon, uh, uh, those people that join Amazon Prime in order to see the new James Bond movie will spend more money on the third-party marketplace and will be open to more ads from the Amazon ad network. And all all of these services sort of lean into each other. And so it means Amazon, Amazon's better able to monetize an eyeball than almost anyone else. Um, so them buying MGM for Eight point four doesn't even seem that surprising. I think they've they're spending over a billion to make the Lord of the Rings uh, series alone. So, yeah, like, it's just, just another- the license it. I think I think that's just the licensing. Oh my god! Well, yeah. So yeah, uh, there's hundreds of millions of dollars in the licensing of of the Tolkien estate. Yeah, yeah. So uh, and I mean the the NFL was a billion dollars a year for fifteen years or something. So so uh, th- this seems like it totally fits. There are People that are saying that MGM uh, that that this is too high a valuation, um, and that Amazon may have like had to reach, uh, but I guess time yeah. will tell on that. Yeah, a couple of fun facts. So um, this is their second biggest acquisition. Um, 
The only one bigger than this one was Whole Foods at 13.7 billion, and this one's about 8.45. Um, and it's important to note that in today's environment, what you do is you you kind of you get everything, all your I's dotted and your T's crossed. You uh, you, know, you file to do the acquisition, and then you have to go through this process um, where you work with the government to see if they're going to let it happen or not. And there's what's it? I know it's called H. Hertz Scott Regino. Hertz Scott Regino, something like that. H R H S G. You may know better than I do. <laughs> but there's this one approval that you get there. But then also, um, increasingly, you know, Amazon's under the antitrust microscope, and there was a lot of. Um, senators tweeting their uh, dislike of this deal. Um, and I'll turn to you for that. But before we do, it is interesting in the media segment, you've got Netflix as kind of the king disruptor and they're causing um, you know a lot of, lot of different things to happen. One of the big ones was AT&T who thought it would be clever to buy a bunch of content to put through their pipes um, in the form of Time Warner. They are shedding Time uh, Warner um, and what's called Warner Media, and that's going to be married with Discovery to, to create a try to have a mass of new and library content to kind of go up against uh, Peacock, Disney Plus, you know, the 80 different new streaming services we're all thinking about, you know, should we subscribe to those or not? Um, so it, it's definitely kind of a little bit of a musical chairs thing, and, and it makes a ton of sense for Amazon to really uh, build a war chest. And, and I think they're buying it mostly for the catalog. And then, you know, when you get that IP, you could come out with, you know, all kinds of James Bond merch. You know, there, there's a lot of really good IP inside of that catalog. So I, I think that's what's driving driving a lot of it. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, there, there is a, a funner, more silly uh, theory about the acquisition. Um, MGM owns a bunch of movies that are in this catalog, but they have even more rights to TV series. And one of the TV series in that portfolio is a show you may be familiar with called The Apprentice. Mm -hmm. And so there, there are people that are like, did Jeff Bezos just buy... MGM so that he could like release all the the unaired you know behind the scene footage from The Apprentice to embarrass anyone that might have been on that show. Hmm, okay, yeah, could be. I doubt it. But we'll yeah. see. Uh, I doubt it. That's a big. That's a big price to pay to. Yeah, embarrassing. I mean, president. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it is. It is funny to think about, but yeah. Um. Yeah. So yeah, it's going to be interesting. I. Uh. Famous last words, I'll probably be dead wrong. Uh, I doubt. Um, so anytime you do uh, a merger or an acquisition of this size, like you you do have to get regulatory approval. Um, I kind of don't think this is going to be that tough because Amazon doesn't have a lot of um, like meaningful network content versus a HBO or a Disney or Netflix at the moment, like, which is how this would have to be looked at. So I, we'll have to see, but I think the, the clause you were referring to is the Hart Scott Rodino, um, which is a law. Yeah, that one. yeah. So, so that's like, remember most antitrust law in the United States is like a hundred years old. So it's super relevant to today's business circumstances. And I say that entirely sarcastically, um, but this, uh, that in 1976, we passed this like minor update, uh, to, to the Clayton Act, which is one of the big antitrust laws. And it was this Hart Scott Rodino 
improve antitrust improvement act and one of the things that it did is it used to be that if uh if if an acquisition was going to uh trigger some antitrust concerns the government had to notice it and had to sue you um and they they made it like from sort of an opt-in to an opt-out kind of situation where if you do an acquisition over a certain size, you have to proactively get the government's approval before the merger can go through. And so now all these big acquisitions have to be proactively um, approved, and and this one will have to go through that process as well. Uh, a minor fun fact, um, there all companies have to comply with antitrust law, whether the deal is big enough to trigger the... the um, HSR or not, uh, it's just if you're over that size, you have to do it proactively. Um, and so there's been one antitrust action against a company that was too small for this act, and it was in the e-commerce space. It was Bizarre Voice versus the Department of Justice when Bizarre Voice bought uh, power abuse. Yeah, they didn't file for it, and then the government flipped out and said, you didn't do it. And then they said, we didn't have to. And then the government said, you did. Uh, well, so, uh, so I don't undo, even- undo that. Yeah, I don't th- even think they said you 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 had to proactively file, but they said it's still an antitrust violation and we're going to prove it. And the government won in court and broke them up. Yep. Uh, yeah. And you were an expert witness. I, I was an expert witness in the case, and then uh, and I lost because I represent a bizarre voice. Um, and then, fun fact, uh, so Power Reviews got split back up, uh, and Power Reviews later hired my wife to run their marketing, so... Losing that case got my wife a job. Boom. There you go. What goes around good karma. You put good karma into the world. It's a small world and I wouldn't want to paint it. Exactly. (laughs) Cool. Also in the, um, the category of antitrust, uh, the, the DC attorney general is going after Amazon. And what's interesting is, you know, the, um, I'll kind of put a quote here. He's alleging that not only are the fees that Amazon charges sellers responsible for higher prices across the web, and we can talk about that, um, that kind of ties to price parity, which uh, Jason Del Rey spent a lot of time on in, in his Amazon podcast series. Um, but also Amazon rewards sellers who use FBA to the detriment of sellers who don't, but have lower prices. And, you know, fact check true on how the algorithm works i'm not sure you know i think what amazon would say on that second part we can talk about price parity next is it's a better customer experience to get your products fast and free um and you know that that ties into it as well uh, as the consideration not just the price so yeah so it's gonna be interesting to see how that one comes out because i think amazon has a good good position there um if you kind of think about the overall customer experience, but the other one is a little trickier, which is the price parity. And, and you're kind of a more of an expert on that one. If you want to run through that one. Yeah. Um, well, so, and it's interesting. To, so the, the AG actually filed the suit. So there's a real lawsuit that Amazon's going to have to respond to. And that, that triggers discovery and all, uh, all kinds of other things um, that make all this antitrust talk a lot more real. Um, and so sort of two things, there's, the outcome of this exact lawsuit and whether Amazon can defend itself and win, whether it loses and has to uh, um, take some some uh, uh, remedy uh, or whether they they somehow settle. Right. Which often happens in these cases. 
Um, so that's the outcome of this suit, which we'll talk about in just a second. But there's a bigger implication um, if in the process of, of defending themselves or settling this suit, uh, they can uh, like get some stuff on the record that then helps trigger other antitrust actions. So so there's a that's a kind of a real risk here. So um, the the specific thing that I think uh, the DC AG is alleging um, that's somewhat problematic for Amazon is uh, that Amazon uh, ha- used to have a price parity clause with a lot of their um, vendors. And so essentially it said, you're not allowed to sell your product uh, cheaper somewhere else than you sell it on Amazon. And um, I think Amazon would say that they uh stop doing that process in like 2019. Um, but the, the attorney general, a can sue them for behavior before 2019. So that, that alone doesn't save you. Um, and then I think the, the, the attorney general also alleged that while they may have discontinued that process in 2019, they're, they're still, uh, enforcing other clauses that essentially have the same outcome. So, so the, the hypothesis here is, um, if you're selling, and, and I think this would apply to both first party and third party, but I, and I don't know, like if if the attorney general had a specific um, example in in their suit, like like the whole text of the suit isn't available yet. But uh, so we'll we'll assume it's third party for a second. I'm I'm selling some widget on Amazon. I promise Amazon I won't sell that same widget cheaper on Walmart. Um, and so what the attorney general is arguing is. Uh, hey, Walmart's bigger than you. Uh, like Walmart might have been able to negotiate a lower price, which would be good for consumers, were it not for the fact that you artificially uh, stopped that vendor from offering Walmart a lower price. And that that is uh, an, uh, a violation of the Sherman Act. And so like you're you're guilty of antitrust for doing that. So that's the the argument. Uh, Amazon's far from the only big player out there with price parity policies. Um, not that that defends you from a lawsuit, but so that's going to be interesting to see how that all plays out. There's some really smart antitrust people that have pointed to that as one of Amazon's biggest vulnerabilities. Um, the, I don't know, like the, it's unlikely that that alone caught, uh, would, would, if Amazon were to lose that case entirely, that it would force Amazon to break up. Like, it would probably force them to pay some fine and promise not to do that that business practice anymore. And maybe, you know, they would have to agree to some kind of, uh, uh, you know, more careful monitoring than they would otherwise like. So uh, we'll see how that all plays out. But the reason this case is super interesting to me is um, there's two things you have to worry about in antitrust. Uh, you, it's, it, anti, uh, doing anti-competitive things is not illegal. Um, it's illegal to be a monopoly and then use that monopoly to do these anti-competitive things. So the Amazon enforcing the price parity thing is only a problem if Amazon uh, meets the strict antitrust definition of a monopoly. And uh, it sounds like that should be pretty pretty easy to know. They're over 50% of something, you're a monopoly. But uh, the problem is, the of something, which is what we call the relevant market, right? So 
uh, if you're the uh, the the D.C. attorney general, what 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 they said in their announcement was that the relevant market is e-commerce. So they're going to say Amazon's more uh, is a majority of e-commerce, which a is probably not true um, by most people's counts. They're in the like 30 to 40 percent of of U.S. e-commerce sales. So they're not even a majority of all e-commerce. Um, and by the way, those numbers wildly undercount certain flavors of e-commerce that like are, you know, people like to discount, but are e-commerce. Right. So people like to take out ticket sales or event sales. People like to take out restaurant sales. And, you know, over 50 percent of all restaurant sales in the last year were e-commerce, thanks to DoorDash. Um, and there's huge e-commerce categories like pornography that nobody puts in their numbers. Right. So um, so if you're Amazon, you're going to argue that you're not a monopoly um, and that you're not over 50 percent of e-commerce. And then they're also going to say, even if we were over 50 percent of e-commerce, e-commerce isn't a relevant market because the definition of a relevant market is that consumers can't um are, are stuck in a market and don't have another alternative. Um, and so they, they actually use this test called the SNP test, which is, means like, could someone make a small but significant price increase? And, you know, would, would customers be forced to pay that because they didn't have some alternative place to go? And Amazon's going to say e-commerce is not a relevant market, doesn't pass the SNP test, because if we raised our prices, people would just drive to Walmart and buy stuff at the store. And so the market is is retail, right? So that um, that's going to be a huge fight that's going to, you know, people are going to spend millions of dollars on both sides fighting. But the reason that's going to be interesting is, is is in the process of litigating this case, if a relevant market gets defined, if a, if a judge rules that something's a relevant market, then suddenly that's going to open up all kinds of other other doors to either Amazon being potentially vulnerable or not being vulnerable to further antitrust actions. So... It's the the first step in a long process, but it's going to be fun to watch as a non financial uh, uh, observer. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I've been following the Apple Epic case, and a lot of interesting uh, things come out of the due diligence. Where you know uh, the CEO of Epic had e- emailed Tim Cook, and Tim Cook's answer was, "Who is this guy?" <laughs> Which for some reason that struck me. It's hilarious. The, you know, he was kind of he was kind of arguing in this. Uh, the the uh, epic guy was arguing with Tim Cook of why they the store. You know, this is really long, intricate email, and as if he and Tim had like known each other and they'd met several times. Tim was like, "Who is this guy?" Yeah. It was like his internal answer to the whole thing. It was classic. <laughs> Probably took the guy like six hours and you know five million dollars of lawyer fees to write that email yeah that's why i try to avoid litigation is because i think of myself as memorable and important and that would be everyone's like discovery (laughs) answer to me yeah yes no one wants all their emails out in the public but that's what's interesting about these things oh my gosh yeah it'll be a great jobs program for lawyers for the next 10 years yeah, my favorite Amazon news this week is that the uh, some of the press has leaked the Amazon Prime Day, and it's going to be June twenty one and twenty two, or at least that's the rumor. It hasn't been been uh, officially announced by Amazon, but it looks like we got a latest June Prime Day this year, so that's exciting. I am actually low on some charging cords and some other things, so I am looking forward to stocking up on some 
uh, some, some uh, accessories. I, I don't think my wife will allow a single more uh, additional cord to come into our home. So uh, that could be problematic for me. Uh, I always excited for prime day. Like I, again, Amazon hasn't, um, confirmed this, but it certainly fits everything we know. Uh, so what has been interesting, it, this is always a challenge out. Amazon always wants to keep it kind of secret and under wraps comma. Uh, it's such a big deal. And Amazon wants to encourage everyone to lean into it that like all the third party merchants need time to prepare for prime day. So it's always kind of a, this tricky balancing act of Amazon not telling us when it is, but wanting everyone to be ready for it. Um, and what has already happened since since it's been pretty obvious that Prime Day is going to be in, in late June sometime is that merchants are starting to panic because uh, a, a common phenomenon right now is merchants are getting their their FBA quotas cut by Amazon. And what that means is um, last quarter you were selling red widgets, uh, on Amazon via FBA and Amazon allowed you to put 35,000 units in the FBA system. And, and, uh, um, there, now you're getting a letter saying you're only allowed to have 20,000 units or 10,000 units, um, or in some cases, no more units. And so all of these, these merchants are getting their, their allocation in the FBA warehouses cut, um, and that's a, a huge bummer leading up to Prime Day because it just means you're not going to be able to sell as much. Yeah. And um, looking at Prime Day over time, Amazon's selling more and more of their stuff, right? So it's the, the things that get the biggest discounts are the Echo This, the Kindle That, and and um, you know, and increasingly as they it's, it's almost become an Amazon gadget day um, for Amazon's owned brands, as you like to say. So ring is in there and now they've got Eero. And so, so that, that seems to be the the bulk of what's going on. And I imagine Amazon needs more room for that stuff. And, and that's kind of why they're, they're clearing the the floor for their own goods to be sold on prime day. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I, I feel like, uh, it's the flywheel in action. Like all of these good things are happening for Amazon. And then, of course, the pandemic, you know, dramatically accelerated people's use of e-commerce, um, which means that everyone wants more inventory in the e-commerce warehouses, which also means more sellers want to come to Amazon. Right. And now we have all these international sellers coming to Amazon as a good way to access the U.S. market. And so if you're an existing seller you're competing for FBA space with way more other sellers than you ever were before and other products than you ever were before. And while Amazon is scaling their fulfillment capacity um, at, you know, frankly, a mind boggling rate, like I feel like demand is, is even faster. And so I think Amazon's having to make some hard decisions about how much room they give everyone. And it, it doesn't feel good if you're one of the, the sellers that feel like you could make more money if you had more room. Okay, so then the other one that's been in the news and kind of a lot of chatter on quote unquote Amazon Twitter is Amazon has really been cracking down on a bunch of these Chinese sellers that have had questionable review policies. Um, so there's a lot of folks, um, you know, you'll you'll see a lot of U.S. based sellers make accusations about Chinese sellers that they're. Um, either buying reviews or, you know, doing some of this gray hat, black hat kind of review stuff. And um, there seem to be 
um, you know, a, a pretty big cleansing, if you will, uh, of a lot of this going on. Uh, I saw the New York Times had an article calling it the Great Purge. So a lot of the U.S.-based sellers were kind of celebrating that this had kind of finally um, seen the light of day and come home to roost. Did you uh, dig into that one? A little bit. Uh, there's a couple interesting things. So, so Amazon kicked a couple of, uh, and we don't know if it's permanent or not, but like delisted a couple of very significant sellers from the platform. And so one um, that's very familiar in my drawers is called Aki, uh, A-U-K-E-Y, I think, um, which is kind of a, a similar company to Anchor with a lot of like interesting charger technologies and cables and things. Um, and so they, they've been a very popular seller on Amazon for, uh, and primarily use the Amazon platform for a while and Amazon took them off. Right. And, and, um, whether it's true or not, Amazon's kind of spinning it as, uh, Hey, we're, uh, we take, uh, all of the, the credibility of the, of the ratings and review system super seriously. And anyone that, that violates it, no matter how big or significant to us is going in the penalty box. And so we proactively took this action. And a lot of other people are saying, uh, yeah, don't really buy it. Um, you know, the attorney general of several states, like, d uncovered some of this nefarious behavior. And only after they, like, brought it to Amazon's attention and insisted Amazon take action um, did Amazon delist these guys. So there's some uh, dispute over over the sequence of events. And then, you know, there were, uh, that New York Times article highlighted a lot of kind of um, – accusations of uh, there being kind of a two-class system that if you're a really big seller on Amazon with significant volume that you get the benefit of the doubt from all these review things and they'll only take action if there's, you know, a huge violation um, versus if you're a smaller seller and you're just accused of some bad behavior, you get put in the penalty box and you have to kind of fight your way out. So uh, don't don't know what the truth is, but uh, it certainly is interesting and it certainly um, – uh, got a lot of uh, uh, traction in the news cycle last week. Um, there were a couple other uh, news items um, and some earnings from this week uh, that we want to cover really quickly. Uh, we're recording this on Thursday night, the 27th, as I mentioned in the opening. And earlier tonight, uh, Walmart launched a surprise event. They uh, had what they call Walmart Shop Along uh, I'll call it a live stream commerce event that they hosted on walmart.com. Um, so we've, we've covered in the past, uh, a couple of interesting social media things Walmart's done where they partnered with TikTok to do some, some live streaming video commerce. Uh, but this time, instead of doing it on TikTok, they did it on walmart.com. So they launched a new URL, uh, walmartshoplive.com. Um, and this first event featured this woman, Anne Marie Ray Drummond. Um, who's more commonly known as the pioneer woman. And uh, uh, Scott will be super familiar with her. She's like the number 22 on Forbes list of top influencers. And so she's like kind of a, a part cook, part, uh, you know, um, apparel, part um, home decor uh, influencer. And so she has a bunch of exclusive products that are sold through Walmart, and they they did a live stream event and sold a bunch of products uh, live off of the video feed tonight. Did you yeah. get anything? I, I actually do know who this is. Uh, I am not a fan. Um, 
my heart belongs only to the Kardashians. Those are the only influencers I pay attention to. So um, I don't, I stop at number one and two on the list and I don't go down to no, the, the 22s. Um, but yeah, is it, uh, so having, you know, I know you're big on live streaming. How does it compare to what some of the Chinese folks are doing? Is it, is it kind of in that genre where, you know, you can buy light right from the stream and it's got like a little bit of a QVC feel, but kind of a different energy, like, like yeah. what, what's it, it look like? The, so, so the most popular live streaming in China is are very, um, bite-sized nuggets. So a, it's, it's not so much this, the, the retail platform is doing a live stream. Like it's not Alibaba's live stream. It's, it's thousands of third-party sellers that are each doing their own live streams and each, live stream in China, you know, they tend to be these like two minute long segments about a particular product. Right. So, so think of them as kind of commercial size live streams, the, um, uh, QVC and HSN historically do these like 30 minute programs where they have one personality, um, in a particular genre selling a bunch of products over half an hour. And so the Walmart live stream felt a lot more like a traditional, uh, QVC style program. I want to say, Tonight's program was like 45 minutes long, um, and uh, it was just Ray and her two daughters, um, you know, talking about a wide wide variety of merchandise, uh, all from her that was for sale um, for 45 minutes. But the uh, there was very, like, seamless commerce integration with the video. So uh, if you watched it on a browser like there's a big window that has the video and she's wearing all these items and demoing them it's a three column interface on the left hand side was a chat box so there's a like live commentary from from shoppers um and they can interact with her and she she very obviously could see all of their comments because she she responded to a lot of the comments in real time um and then the third column had like product tiles for everything she was talking about so when she was talking about a dress, she's wearing the dress, but there's a product tile for the dress on this right-hand column, and you could click on it and and immediately add it to your cart and check out if you wanted. Um, and you could scroll back to see any of the previous tiles. So it, it's, it seemed like the commerce interface and the chat was all um, pretty well done. I don't know what American consumers are going to want in terms of live streaming, but this this did feel a lot more like the pretty traditional American version of a of a TV show infomercial than these kind of bite-sized um, commerce experiences that are that are really taking off on Taobao Live, for example, which is like a platform for all these individual sellers selling stuff. Do you think they um, they built their own platform for this, or there's is there like a vendor out there that's licensing all these? these retailers, this kind of stuff? Uh, a little of both. So A, uh, there, there was some complaint about some technical problems. So it sounded like, and I think Walmart even, like a, a Walmart moderator even said a couple times, hey, some of you on mobile are having a problem. We're working on it. And it seemed like it wasn't, uh, not everyone had a problem, but it seemed like some people did. Uh, it definitely seemed like a, a, a completely white-labeled platform for Walmart. Uh, a bunch of us kind of dug underneath the the covers um, and there's a popular content management system out there for sort of codeless web development called Webflow. Um, and it appears that this site was built on Webflow, which is 
interesting to me for a couple of reasons. Um, and oh, sorry, there's a another vendor that specializes in actual video streams, um, and they're called BeLive, and they're uh, um, and so it looks like they were using Webflow as the 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 wrapper for all this, and they were streaming the video through BeLive. Um, Number one, these are very popular tools that I'd recommend generally to someone that needed to build something quick and prototype something, but they're not necessarily the scalable, robust enterprise tools that you would expect Walmart to to be using if they thought they were going to be putting $10 billion of revenue through it. Um, and so that's fine. To me, that says that this is kind of a pilot for them or a minimum viable product and that they... They, they built something to test the experience instead of something that would scale to the ultimate size it could, it could achieve for Walmart. So that was interesting. But fun fact, uh, Webflow is hosted, uh, exclusively on Amazon EC2. So, uh, I don't, mm. I don't know this for a fact. Maybe Walmart was able to negotiate some special hosting arrangement, but the likelihood is that this, that the, this thing was actually running on Amazon. <laughs> You could picture someone at Amazon with the cause a mobile problem button ready to go. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Don't, yeah, don't, don't know about that either, but uh, I am pretty confident if this became something uh, that, that was going to be a recurring thing at Walmart, that it would probably be a not uh, hosted on a non Amazon solution. Um, and they, they have pretty robust it chops at this shop at, at this point. So uh, I don't know the, to me, I actually take that as a positive sign that maybe they're, they're doing fast, agile stuff and not trying to perfectly engineer everything um, in order to just test whether users are going to like something or not. Yeah, I love it. I love when big companies do MVPs and kind of do the spirit of the MVP where, yeah, they just put something together pretty quick and put it out there and get some feedback and then iterate. So it'll be cool to see how that goes. Yeah, and that does, that feels like the spirit of Walmart lately. They've done the, these TikTok pilots. Now they're doing... Uh, a pilot on their own platform. Um, so yeah, uh, uh, props like, and, uh, we'll I'll be interested to hear what results they share with us. Um, a couple of other random things, the, we're going to jump into some more earnings cause there were a bunch of retail earnings calls this week. Um, and, uh, spoiler were they're all across the board, like for companies that did really well in the pandemic, like they're, their comps this quarter are a little soft because they're starting to comp against how well they did in the pandemic. And if they're a company that like, you know, uh, traditionally wasn't great at e-commerce, then their e-commerce exploded last year, which meant their e-commerce comps this year aren't as good. So, so they're kind of all across the board. And as a result of all these earnings, you're starting to see all these articles being written about how, um, oh man, you know, the, the luster's wearing off of e-commerce and people are going back to stores and we're starting to see store comps go up and, and the rate of e-commerce growth slow down. And uh, I find those articles a little annoying because they're mostly written by people that don't seem to understand um, like uh, the difference between a, 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 um, a sales rate and a change in sales rate right so they're you know they're they're interpreting like hey retail sales went from up four percent to up six percent and e-commerce slowed down from up a hundred percent to up fifty percent um therefore customers are stop stopping e-commerce and going into stores (laughs) and it's like no 
way more people bought something online for the first time last quarter than ever before, right? Like it's, uh, they're just not under fundamental. It's a fundamental misunderstanding of rates of change. Um, and, uh, one of the things I still like to remind people an inconvenient, uh, truth about the whole pandemic and retail is while in the United States, things are trending in the right direction. They feel good. Things are opening up less masks, uh, Retailers are rebounding. All these good things are happening. Uh, comma, most of the data on store traffic is still that that there are way less people in the store today than were in the store two years ago. Uh, so nationwide, according to Shopper Track, um, we are uh, still have twenty percent less traffic than we did in twenty nineteen, um, and that's been kind of consistently true for the last twenty four weeks. So. Uh, and by the way, that makes the U.S. more recovered than most countries. Like a lot of places in Europe, like traffic is still down 50 percent from two years ago. So it it is still true. A lot less people are walking into stores and a lot more people are buying stuff online than ever before. So, um, you know, interpret all these numbers, listen to all these numbers, but don't don't, you know, um, overreact to these these articles that are saying like e-commerce is kind of curtailing. Yeah, and you um you called it. You predicted a lot of folks are going to talk about the two year ago metric, and, and it looks like it's starting to come to fruition. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, yeah. Uh, the the if I had a dollar for every time someone said "roaring twenties or two years ago in an earnings call, I would I would um have uh raised almost as much money as Perch. Um, <laughs> so let's jump into those those earnings real. Real quickly, um, a wide variety of retailers. So the first one I saw, and most of these are from today. So uh, like uh, our podcast is nothing if not timely. Um, Ulta, which is one of the two big specialty beauty companies reported. Um, and th- this is a perfect example. Uh, so their their comps for stores in the United States were up 65.9% from this quarter a year ago. Um, so that's, uh, you know, a year ago, the quarter would have been partly impacted by COVID, but so being up sixty five percent is is a big number. That, but what that probably just means is that they took a huge hit a year ago. Um, and if you uh, if you look at Ulta's comps from two years ago, they're up seven. Their sales are up seven percent from where they were this quarter two years ago. So so they're up. Um, they probably you know like if if seven percent over two years is like you know. Um, modest growth. It's but it's not astronomical growth. So, uh, so that was Ulta. Then Costco, U.S. comp. And by the way, Ulta does not break out their e-commerce separately. Uh, Costco, uh, U.S. comps were up eighteen point two percent. Um, so that's healthy. But again, Costco probably never had to close for the pandemic, and Costco is probably a net winner in the. Um, uh, pandemic visits. And so when you, when they're up 18%, that's pretty impressive. And then their e-commerce was way up, which is kind of against most of the trends because last a year ago was such a good quarter for e-commerce that most companies aren't comping that well against, against last year's e-commerce numbers, but Costco's was up 41%. Did that surprise yeah. you at all, Scott? It does. Cause Costco, you know, they, they, they haven't really super embraced e-commerce. It must be, <laughs> uh, it must be, I'm going to guess it's Instacart. Is it like some delivery thing? That it is, it is partly Instacart. So it's complicated. So Costco have like 
shelf-stable products, which they do sell via their own e-commerce and have for a while. Um, but per your point, they they don't do it enthusiastically. And a lot of Costco execs still like have fame, like as much. As recently as a year ago, we're saying, why would we ever encourage anyone not to walk in a store, right? Um, And then the perishables, you couldn't get via e-commerce at all, and Costco partnered with Instacart, so now you you can get some of the frozen and perishables uh, via e-commerce. And so you're exactly right. Like, when someone has a big e-commerce quarter right now, what I say is that they left money on the table a year ago, and because Costco like is a hugely successful retailer in spite of not leaning into digital. Um, They, you know, were not prepared for the spike in demand for e-commerce. They didn't have a good fresh and frozen solution for e-commerce, which is a big chunk of their sales. And so to me, this 41% is, is more indicative of them not doing as well as they could have a year ago. Hmm. Um, I agree. So flip side, uh, dollar general comps are down, 4.6%. And this is a perfect example of a company that like uh, did pretty well in the pandemic, which is interesting because, you know, they both had something going for them and something going against them. Like people were worried about their finances in the pandemic. And so that certainly worked in favor of Dollar General, Um, but they were not considered essential goods and so had to close a lot of stores. So being down 4% versus last year, um, is interesting. Now, I will say people all have slightly different definitions. Like mo- when, when I'm saying comps, that's comparable store sales. And so that's, we take out of that stores that opened and closed. Um, but it is possible that Dollar General is only comping open stores against open stores. I don't know. Um, but to kind of put this in a an overall perspective, uh, their comps versus two years ago are up 17%. So generally uh, going in a good direction. Yeah. Um, and so then Best Buy, which I was most interested in, uh, Best Buy is in a really interesting category. There's a lot of evidence that like some parts of electronics killed it in the pandemic. Everyone needed a laptop. Um, the... But a lot of electronics products didn't do that well in the pandemic. And so it's kind of like a mixed bag. And then the overall electronics category actually didn't do phenomenally well. And yet Best Buy reported good numbers every quarter. Um, And they did again. So their comps were up 38%, 37.9%, which is very strong. Um, The... And e-commerce like was very modest, up only 7%. And that's reflective of them having a monster e-commerce growth during during the pandemic that, that, that they're now lapping. Um, and so the, the interesting number to me at Best Buy is um, for this last quarter, 33% of all their sales were online. So almost a third of, of their sales were online. Um, and that's down a little bit at the peak of the pandemic last year when a bunch of stores were forced to close because they were non-essential, 42% of, of uh, Best Buy sales were online. So there was a um, the overall consumer electronics category. A lot of people are reporting that it's 50% online, which is mostly thanks to Amazon. Um, so it's, in, you know, Best Buy being at 40 last year, you could have imagined that they would just build on that. But it, it does appear that as people are going back to the stores um, their, their e-commerce penetration rate dipped a little bit. Um, 
the next earnings uh, is is uh, a cautionary tale for me. <laughs> is uh, Burlington Coat Factory? So they had good comps this quarter. Their comps were up twenty percent. In general, apparel company comps this quarter are, are monster because apparel like nobody bought any apparel a year ago. Um, and so twenty percent, I would actually argue, doesn't feel that big. Um, and then I can't give you an e-commerce number because Burlington Coat Factory turned off their website a month before the pandemic. <laughs> Oops. Yeah, which is, uh, at the time, I felt like a bad decision, but then in hindsight, it looks like a really bad decision. And then insult to injury, um, profitability was down on their 20% comp. And you go, well, gosh, Jason, why were, was profitability down? Oh, well, they had a bunch of expenses related to closing their website. <laughs> <laughs> Which that can't, can't be fun to to mention in the uh, in the shareholder meeting, um, and then the last uh, earnings, which uh, I I think was also today, uh, is the Gap, um, and uh, they're uh, much more typical of what what I'm seeing in apparel companies. Their overall comps were up twenty eight percent, and their their digital was up eighty two percent, which that is impressive. That's uh, you know, we are seeing the the rate of growth of most e-commerce uh, dip. Gap was already a good e-commerce operator with significant e-commerce sales. So for them to be up 82%, that to me says that a bunch of people like are, are the, the e-commerce habit for clothes is permanent. Um, and to kind of put this in perspective, in this quarter, when people were welcome to walk into a Gap store, um, e-commerce still represented 40% of Gap sales. So, so you know. They're they're almost a digital first retailer at this point. Sidebar: Didn't I see some news that it was kind of a head scratcher, and it, it kind of uh, I was watching CNBC in the background, and it, I I just kind of heard it in passing that the Gap is going to be selling in Walmart. Uh, yeah, so that is interesting. Um, not How does e- that work? Is it like a micro store thing? Not exactly. So Walmart launched a new home goods line that is a Gap uh, partnership, Gap designed product. Um, and oh, okay. so, so you can think of this like, uh, in the past, like Gap has had ha- home goods, or I'm sorry, Walmart has had home goods from Drew Barrymore. Um, and so, you know, they've hired influencers that have a good reputation. So this time they hired the Gap to, to design these products. And I, I, I'm not certain of this, but, uh, um, I don't think that these products are going to be for sale in the Gap. I think they might exclusively be at Walmart. So this is, um, Gap kind of acting like a brand as opposed to a retailer and making an exclusive product line for Walmart, right? And, you know, we've seen a lot of brands successfully do that with Target um, and surprise and delight uh, Target guests by, you know, um, having a product that traditionally you wouldn't expect to see in Target in Target. And, and that feels a little bit like what this play is. Um, and, uh, Scott, you and I have a good friend who used to run home goods for Walmart and is now at the gap. So, um, it, it wouldn't surprise me if, if, uh, she had a hand in, uh, this particular program. Causation or correlation. We don't yeah, know. Don't know. Have to see if she'll come on the show and give us all the details. That's a great idea. Um, yeah. So that was a lot of, uh, news for what we thought was going to be a slow news week. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for covering uh, the tail end of those results. I think that ties in nicely with what we covered last time. But let's jump into listener questions. Listener 
Listener questions. Our first listener question comes from uh, one of the longtime friends of the show, Michelle Grant, at the small software company called Salesforce or something like that. Um, and her question was, what has been the impact of Apple's IDFA update? Um, and I'm going to sneak my answer in here, Jason, because I know you're more of a guru on this. I think it's a little too early to call because this is just pretty brand new. And I think the most interesting you know, uh, shareholder call is going to be Facebook's Q2 results. And I'm kind of on pins and needles to see see what they say about it. Because I think, I think that and Shopify could be the two places where we, if there's going to be an impact, that that we kind of hear about it and, and get some information about it. So, so those are two that I'm keeping an eye on. And I did see um, Revolution Clothing, Revolution Apparel. Uh, they they kind of signaled in their Q1 that uh, guidance for Q2 that they felt like there could be some softness. And the way the way they announced it, they already had some data that showed it was having an impact. So those are the those are kind of my my brief thoughts. What are you seeing out there in, in retail geek land? Yeah, I would say like top line is you're exactly right. Too early to tell. Um, it it is the the IDFA changes are making their way into a lot of um uh earnings like uh QA sessions at this point, but like it, it doesn't seem like they're most retailers are claiming they have data that they're being impacted. They're just is like management teams are speculating that it it's having an impact. Um, pretty quickly after the the new update kicked in, uh, there was a lot of uh, buzz going around about these really low opt in rates. Right. So again, uh, in the old world, um, everyone had a unique number on their mobile phone, and and so uh, uh, advertisers could use that number to see what apps you installed on your phone. In the new world, you have to agree to let each app see your license plate, if you will. Um, and so there's this requester that pops up, and you have to say, yes, uh, they they can have this data, or no, they can't have this data. So that's the opt-in rate are the people that said yes. And there are all these articles coming out that, like, a tiny fraction of users are, are opting in, that, like, opt-in rates are, like, 4%, for example, was a common... Uh, a stat that came out and there are, you know, these, these third party companies that track app installs and that, and a lot of these numbers were coming from them. And, and so a couple of things to know, uh, those app companies don't actually have any way to know what the app, uh, rate is like, this is people like running surveys and asking consumers if they accepted the opt-ins or not, um, which customers can't reliably answer and might not accurately answer. Um, so don't put a lot of stock in those numbers. And then as, as things have progressed a few more weeks, the numbers are now varying wildly. Like one company will say 4% and another company will say 38%. And one thing that's emerging is something that seems really simple, like calculating an opt-in rate. It turns out all these companies have found ways to, to mess with the numbers. So we can't even agree on what an opt-in rate is. Right. So a lot of like, you know, again, in theory, you have to opt into every app. So, so Scott, like, if you opted into three of the apps and out of seven of the apps, like, 
in theory, each app should have a different opt-in rate, right? And then, you know, the yeah. app, the average should be across all 10. But a lot of these companies are reporting, like, if you opted out of anything, you're an opt-out. And so that, you know, caused an artificially low number that, you know, fit in narrative that a lot of people wanted to tell. So I think the real thing is we don't Isn't know. it at the OS level? Don't I tell... You, Isn't there a setting? There, in there the is OS? also a setting uh, that's a global setting at the OS level. Um, that a requester did not pop up asking you to make a global preference. So you okay. you would have to proactively go find that setting. Some people are finding it, and again, how should you count them in these numbers? Um, yeah. a, another thing that came up, and I tweeted some examples of this, is different companies did a different. Uh, a better or worse job coding the the opt in request, and so um, you know Apple used some some pretty inflammatory language in their requester, but then uh, each each app gets an opportunity to explain why why it's to a consumer's benefit to um, opt in, right? Um, and so you you kind of got to make your case, and uh, at least for me on Facebook, the way Facebook coded their app. Um, they they made a case for why I should want to give them that data, um, but the way they coded the app, the the Apple window with the inflammatory language popped up on top of their test, and it was modal. I had to answer before I could get it out of the way, so I could never see Facebook's argument, which is wild if you think about it. That they that you know a cup, company with as much at stake as Facebook wouldn't have a perfect you know best case execution is somewhat surprising. I feel like behind the scenes, there's this measures, countermeasures, counter, counter measures going on between the companies. Yeah. All of these things are, are interesting. Um, what, you know, the most tangible thing is there definitely are some advertisers that are saying like, it feels like CPAs are going up. Um, so the, 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 the cost to reach an audience is, is going up now. Is that like because of other market conditions or is that because some of these ads are less effective because, um, or, you know, harder to measure because of the IDFA changes. Again, too early to tell. Um, you know, definitely companies that aren't performing well are mentioning that as one of the factors that might be negatively influencing them. Uh, it might, by the way, also show up later in the Epic case, right? So we'll have to... Yeah, like, be interesting. Yeah, so that could be a place where we get better visibility into some of this data if it comes up. Yep. Awesome. Um, so Michelle, stay tuned. We this is you know kind of both of our favorite topic right now. So we're going to keep our ear to the ground and and keep reporting on this. Okay, our second question comes from Sean McGinnis, and he asks, "When will supply chains return to normal lead times? What's causing the issues we're experiencing today?" Yeah. So uh, do you want me to take a first shot at this one, or do you? Want yeah, to- yeah. Hit me, Scott. All right. So. Um, so two foundational things here. So we've, you know, most of the products that we would talk about in the e-commerce world have a supply chain of they're, they're manufactured, uh, usually not in the United States. So usually in China, Taiwan, maybe India, Singapore, usually it's coming out of Asia. So, so that's part of the supply chain. Then um, it frequently to be economical has to get here on a boat. Um, and then it has to get offloaded at a port and then transported somewhere um, at least once, usually two or three times until it makes it into fulfillment centers uh, or retail stores where it's sold. 
Um, so then, so that's foundation number one is the, how the kind of the links in the chain. And then number two is let's think about some of the disruptions we've had. Number one, COVID. Number two, we've had the Suez Canal. Number three, we've got um, a really weird unemployment situation in the United States right now, where it is, it is near impossible to hire people. <laughs> and uh, we could talk about the root cause of that. I don't know where you come out on that one, Jason, but we're. You know, I'm pretty squarely in the camp that it's this unemployment insurance stuff has, has made it very hard to hire folks, especially, um, you know, kind of at that hourly level. Um, but that that is a factor. So if we kind of think about that, you know, so COVID hit and a lot of these factories shut down and then they picked back up and then the demand coming into them, um, you know, whipsawed because we're their biggest, the United States is the biggest consumer of that stuff. And you know, imagine you were making, uh, I don't know, um, apparel <laughs> and then, you know, you probably wound down the factory and then suddenly, you know, uh, I think a lot of people are surprised by how fast things have come back, uh, and how fast the vaccines came out. And now this, now that factory is having spin up. Um, so that that's part of the, the problem in that part of the chain. And then, um, the canal caused it to be very uh, a backup of boats uh, coming over uh, the slow boats uh, from China. And, you know, there have been very long lines also at the ports because there's so much coming in and this huge surge of demand that, that it's hard to unload those things because it's hard to find dock workers now and it's hard to find truck drivers and it's hard to find warehouse workers and it's hard to find, um, you know, uh, people at FedEx to hire. And it's, uh, so, so, you know, I think, I think it's probably not going to clear up, uh, until in September is when these unemployment benefits run out. There are some things on the books to look to extend that, uh, that I'm crossing my fingers don't happen. So I could see this, you know, being a, all the way through October problem, and that's if there's no more shocks to the system. So we'll have to see there. There's been so many shocks to the system that it feels like there could be more coming. What do you think, Jason? Yeah, no, I generally, so I would agree with all of that. I'll confess early on when people were talking about um, the unemployment benefits impacting labor, I was a little skeptical, but I feel like the evidence is pretty clear at this point that it is. Um, and especially you can compare some states that have more generous unemployment benefits than others and the the ability to to attract uh, low-wage labor in the, the states with more generous benefits is harder. Um, and then a bunch of retailers open up and get busier, and retailers are fighting tooth and nail right now to hire hourly employees and having to raise their their wages and all those sorts of things. So I think that those are uh, all those factors are true. The 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 labor shortage is definitely um, true. Lots of retailers are feeling it. I would add just two other things. Um, aside from the ability to deliver inventory, like obviously most brands and retailers were conservative in the inventory they ordered a year ago, not knowing like that vaccines would work and where we'd be in the pandemic. Um, and so they, you know, there is the inventory is low right now, partly because uh, re, uh, everyone was conservative in what they ordered. And so a, a byproduct of that is people are having to discount less than they usually do. And they're, they're actually making slightly more profit on their sales than they usually do, um, because the discount rates are lower. Uh, but I do suspect that people are kind of, you know, 
trying to goose those orders now and and you know we'll probably see inventory levels get get higher as we get closer to holiday um and then one other long-term impact on this whole supply chain is the fact that a bigger percentage of total sales is happening through e-commerce as we talked about via ship again and other things on the show um the uh demand for shipping parcels was far out exceeding the capacity to ship parcels and that's happening even more now right so uh mm-hmm. we're you know i think there's some data this year that uh um that uh fedex is in particular like you know having degraded uh delivery times because um and they just announced some additional surge pricing so you know they have a certain amount of par- parcels they can deliver and they want to maximize the profit for each of those parcels so i think that problem is going to be a longer term problem that's going to be with us all through holiday that as a you know a higher percentage of all sales happen in e-commerce uh we've got to figure out the the ability to fulfill all of those packages yeah and it, it was interesting because um i was talking to someone that i'll say is in the logistics kind of you know category that has a lot of these type of hourly drivers and they said Amazon came in and got really aggressive and offered them all $18 an hour and basically sucked up all the drivers in in kind of this Raleigh Durham area where I am so so that was you know so that's interesting this this kind of like land war going on uh this last mile area that's part of that supply chain that that uh, you know I'm sure the FedExes and the UPSs of the world are starting to feel and Amazon seems to be super aggressive. Um, it's kind of counterintuitive because you also hear all these stories about how badly the drivers are treat being treated. But you know what 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 I found is that um, that hourly type worker they're uh, you know not super loyal, very coin operated, which, which uh, I have a lot of respect for. And uh, you know Amazon is offering more coins, and it may not be. You know, you don't get as much breaks or anything like that, but the the hourly rate is really good, and they are soaking up a lot of those those kinds of last mile delivery people. So, um, it, it could also be the case that that it's um, not evenly distributed supply chain problems that maybe Amazon's in a bit of a better position. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and Scott, that's going to be a good place to leave it because it's happened again. We have blown through a perfectly good hour of our listeners' time. So as always, if you enjoyed this show, we sure would appreciate that five-star review on iTunes. Thanks, everybody. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.